If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. All right. Okay. I'm trying. I'm not, 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 I'm not sure if I remember how. Ooh-wee. Head rush from the jet lag. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, Ty Cats, no, they're not in it, uh, but that's uh, another... <laughs> That's another topic. We'll talk about that later. Do the changes need to be have to be made on the field or maybe in upper offices? Uh, just thinking. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Other news. Uh, Can- uh, Canadians have left Gaza uh, and on a way into Egypt as an escape route. We understand there's about 25 to uh, around 25 that may be there. Uh, limited information. Obviously, we'll keep you updated on that at the top and bottom hours uh, in the newscast. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, the Environment Sustainable Development Commission. I didn't know either. Uh, Jerry uh, DeMarco has said that uh, the Liberals' climate change is simply not working. It can't be trusted. That is a quote. Uh, And I've said for many years the carbon tax has been a fundraiser for the Liberals because they know the Canadians are very conscious about uh, the environment. And if that's what needs to be done, they will help. So it'll be fascinating to see how this all pans out uh, as uh, as we move forward. All right. so I, I was, I've been off and away for a couple of weeks and I've had no sleep. So if I, uh, say th- uh, some things I'm not supposed to or I stumble and fall, please forgive me. Uh, but, uh, my wife and I were fortunate. This was, you know, one of those COVID things that didn't happen, uh, way back when, uh, have gone, uh, went on a, a, a European trip. So we spent a couple of days in Switzerland. Then we joined a riverboat cruise with about, uh, 16 other people which puts a whole different spin on a riverboat cruise. Uh, and then we went down the Rhine River. Um, on one side is Germany. On the other side is France. So you can imagine uh, the amount of history and, and so on and so forth, castles on both sides, and just kind of stopped on either side uh, all the way down, which was uh, absolutely uh, fabulous. And then it ended off uh, with a couple of days in Amsterdam. And um, you know what that's like. Well, maybe you don't, but it is, uh, it's fabulous to see. It was fabulous to go through Switzerland uh, and fabulous to go through parts of France and Germany and such in the Netherlands because often in the world we look to these countries as countries that are doing things right, especially Switzerland. I was really curious and asked a lot of questions about their politics, their tax structure, and everything. And, and, and I think my take in all of this is, you know, when comparing the two, which you can't because it's two totally different cultures, totally different lives, totally different geography. Um, but, you, you know, and a lot of things they say about Scandinavians, you know, well, they do this or the Swiss, they do that, they do, and they got this right, they got that, and they do have a tremendous amount of things right, but they don't do it from one extreme or the other. They do it with a combination. They do it with a mixture. Uh, they combine an incredible amount of bicycles on the road with traffic, with uh, rail, with everything. And you see the same thing in their energy mix. My goodness, I don't have enough digits to count on my hand how many cargo ships filled with coal I saw going up and down the Rhine River as they try to keep the lights on in Europe and as well have wind. I mean, the Germans are 
are are in, uh, inventive when it comes to all of this. I mean, they were they're on the cutting edge of technology and such, and they're just trying to get by. So you see everything from coal burning plants to nuclear plants. What's missing is that uh, liquid natural gas in the middle to help them transition. So you know, often we point to these places and we say they do this, they do that, and what I really found is what is in Europe or specifically Switzerland. There's less extremism. So they believe, for example, in, in taking care of their people and giving them the best possible life that they, they can possibly give them. But they are also into engineering brilliance and the things that they build and the things that they create. And we can't get anything built. We can't get anything created. So it, it's, it's really a contrast in, in societies, not because one's more left or one's more right, but we are in North America, it appears extremists. Either it's on the extreme left or it's on the extreme right. And what these countries do is they find the balance. You know, it was like being in Amsterdam and we did a, a bicycle tour, which was incredible. And, and, you know, explained that the city is two meters below sea level. It's a constant uh, a negotiation with uh, with dams and dikes and things to manage the, the the water and the ingenuity and and the engineering brilliance that you see in these cities is what we are lacking it's either one extreme or the other you know you'll see uh, for example uh, lots of rail lots of high speed rail and electric rail but then you'll see a two kilometer tunnel going through a mountain in a circular fashion in order to get their traffic from point A to point B. So, you know, I, I think on the journey from Zurich to Lucerne, we landed in Zurich, Switzerland, we must have passed through 20 tunnels and each of them almost a meter long, a meter long, like just engineering brilliance and leadership as well as social programs. And that in Canada and America seems to be forgotten. I mean, it's either you're extremely left or extremely right. We see that with the current government that we have taking the once great left of center party to the extreme left. And some would say the same with the conservatives to the extreme right. So if there's really any lessons to be learned uh, from a political, environmental, social standpoint from my trip is it's not about the extremes. It's about taking everybody's idea and working together on a solution and getting it done. As simple as that. All right, lots to talk about today. You can tell. It is, um, well, um, we all are pretty disappointed in the season and, and you know, big quarterback falls out early on and the rest is history, as they say. Do the Ticats need a change? Is it a change on the field? Is it uh, rather not really a fair start initially? Uh, and those changes need to happen uh, upstairs or downstairs Let's bring in John Hodge, reporter for Three Down Nation, co-host of Three Down Nation podcast, and is here now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts as you dissect, look back on the on the Hamilton Ticat season. Obviously, uh, the big star didn't turn out to be what it was for obvious reasons. It's tough to recover from something like that. What are your thoughts? Well, to me, it would be, uh, it, it was kind of a broken record. Wasn't it? I, I mean, this yeah. is the theme that when 8 and 10 in 2022, you know, after promoting Orlando Steinhauer to, you know, not just the role of head coach, which he'd had previously, but giving him the title of president of football operations, and they were at a bit of a crossroads at the quarterback spot in 2022, and they decided to make Dane Evans the guy. 
and allow Jeremiah Masoli to leave via free agency. And obviously, given the moves that were made, the coaching staff remained virtually identical from 2022 to 2023. The defense remained very similar. Uh, a lot of the offensive weapons were the same. The big change, what they clearly identified was the problem, was was the quarterback position. And Dane Evans was shipped out of town uh, relatively unceremoniously. And Bo Levi Mitchell was brought in to be the guy. And, and obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but that move turned out to be, if anything, counterproductive. I mean, Bo Levi Mitchell was, was considerably worse in 2023 than Dane Evans was in 2022. And injuries are a factor, of course. Bo suffered mm-hmm. two major injuries, only played six games, but he he played very poorly, all things considered, when he was in in the game. And, of course, the Ticats chose to leave him out for most of the East semifinals. So, obviously, they were not happy with the way in which he played. So, to me, it was it was a different quarterback, but same result for the Ticats in 2023. So, do they keep him moving forward? What do you do? Well, Bo is the second highest paid player in the CFL, and he signed through 2025. Now, CFL contracts are not guaranteed. So the Ticats have essentially three choices. They can keep him at his current rate, which would be ridiculous, given, of course, that he didn't play the most important game of the season. The third choice they have is to cut him, and in which case they would just go somewhere else, find another quarterback, or, or potentially roll with like a, a Matthew Schilt-Taylor-Powell combination. Or the second choice, the middle choice, is they can try to renegotiate with Bully by Mitchell. The problem is, Bo Levi Mitchell has been connected to potentially a, a future at TSN. He's he's worked the last few Grey Cups as a member of the TSN panel, and I'm led to believe he was also even at TSN's uh, Christmas party last year for a lot of their CFL on TSN people. It was kind of a, a year-end wrap-up thing. So I, I do think that Bo's long-term future lies in broadcasting, and if you know, the, the, the Thai cats who are currently paying him just for context sake in the neighborhood of about $500,000 a year. If they say, Hey, do you want to come back as, you know, a backup kind of mentor? We'll, we'll pay you 150. Well, all of a sudden it's like, well, I can, I can potentially make that working on television and I don't mm-hmm. have to worry about getting hit by yeah. 300 pound men every week. So that I think would be the most likely option. But I also don't know if that's something that Mitchell wants to entertain at this point of his career. He's already made a lot of money. He's already won MOPs. He's already won Grey Cups. And uh, if he can make the same amount of money off the field as on it, I wouldn't blame him. He decided to hang him up and, and take the TV money. Uh, every every year, like you said, two, uh, eight and ten. What uh, seasons we, is every and we see changes on the field. Sometimes we don't coaching. Whatever is this a field coaching situation? Is this a upper management issue where just wrong direction? Well, the CFL has what's called an operations cap, and this was brought in a number of years ago, essentially to try and corral some of the heavy spending that was ongoing off the field with certain teams with coaching salaries getting out of hand or whatever else. And I'm also led to believe that it is something that is supposed to enhance expansion by capping, like the player earnings, of course, were already capped under a player salary cap, but by capping the operation staff, people like, you know, the coaches, uh, the personnel people, the video people, all that, it would be more, uh, more feasible, I suppose, to attract potential owners for, for an expansion team 
because they would have a very set idea of what the cost would be of operating the club every year. And what that's resulted in is teams not just having guys do the job that they traditionally have done. They will add titles onto a particular individual in the clubhouse or a couple of individuals in the clubhouse in order to pay them more money. And then it's up to them to delegate some of their responsibilities to subordinates who have lesser titles. And for instance, in Hamilton, that has been done with Orlando Steinau, right? He was the head coach of the team in 2019 and 2021. Come 2022, he takes on the role of, of president of, of, of football operations, which is a very unorthodox combination. And that's not you know, entirely unheard of. Chris Jones is the head coach, general manager, and defensive coordinator at Edmonton. Rick Campbell, the, the head coach of the BC Lions, also has a GM title there. Like there, there are lots of teams around the league who have combined these things in one way or another. And so if you want to talk about the coaching versus, you know, the overarching personnel side in Hamilton, what one could argue it's one of the same. I mean, I know a lot of the the personnel is delegated by Orlando Steinauer. He's got a good supporting cast there, guys like Spencer Zimmerman, who's who's a well tenured personnel guy in the CFL. Drew Alamang does the C does the CFL draft for that club and some of their contracts. And then they've got Ed Hervey in the clubhouse as well. Ed Hervey was a great cup winning general manager with the Edmonton Elks back in the mid 2010s. So, you know, it, I, I think personally they, they made some odd personnel choices for this season, bringing in guys like Duke Williams, uh, Chris Edwards, who in the past have, have maybe not been the best locker room guys. However, with that being said, when it comes to Hamilton, I don't think you can talk about coaching and personnel as two separate things, simply because of the way in which they have it structured. Orlando Steinhauer is mm. the guy, and, and the Ticats gave him those titles, first of all, to get him more money, but then also to prevent him from going to the NCAA. He was tied after 2021 to a potential job opening out near his alma mater in Washington. So mm. it's, it's, it's a bit of a messy situation from, from that perspective because they're so strongly tied together. John Hodge, reporter for Three Down Nation, co-host of the Three Down Nation podcast. John, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. Anytime. We've heard and we've certainly uh, we've known for years that uh, uh, we have a housing crisis and we also have a shortage of skilled labor. It has turned uh, the tide, hopefully, in the way we view all of this. And during National Skilled Trades and Technology Week, which is this week, the Mohawk College Foundation is promoting a fundraising campaign to support skilled trades education with an appeal for uh, two Hamiltonians for health. To talk more about all of this, Ron McCurley with us, president Mohawk College and here now. Ron, thank you for the time hope you're well scott i'm doing very well thanks for having me on the show has has our tide turned has the tide turned on the way we view uh the skilled trades because at what point at one point it was all about university educations this that and the other and and now of course we've created a, a shortage and now uh the demand is there the paychecks are there for more skilled trades is this tide turning it is turning. I wouldn't say it's totally turned yet, Scott, but I do think that, you know, parents and uh, students are looking at, you know, what they're going to pay for a college or university education and what the return on that investment is going to be. And one of the best returns on that investment today is those that study in one of the skilled trades and then accept one of the great paying jobs that come out of that. So I, I do think that there's more attention to the skilled trades today than there has been in the past. 
I would say there's still lots of dreams for uh, parents that their son or daughter become, uh, you know, a doctor, lawyer, uh, mm. or or a professional uh, through a university education. But boy, there's some great jobs available in the trades, and the demand is there. These students are all getting jobs. How great is the demand? You've just sort of answered my my next question. Many do have opportunity long before they're finished. Well, absolutely. Um, so but one of our biggest problems is keeping students uh, in the program right through to the end of it, because a lot of them have job mm. offers and employment before they uh, finish the education. Uh, in our uh, aviation programs, or so aviation mechanical engineer and aviation structures and avionics uh, students, uh, on average, have more than two job offers each before graduation. So that is just one example. But we have offered 17 different trades at the college, and uh, the employment rate is very, very high for everybody coming through those programs. Uh, is it a choice between one or the other, meaning university or college, or is it combo of both? Well, increasingly, it's a combo of both. So interestingly enough, one out of three of our students at the college come from university. Uh, so uh, they're educated. They've got... Um, uh, they certainly understand how to learn, but uh, now they're looking for uh, something that will give them skills, uh, the ability to get a job, to be able to support the family. So um, increasingly, it is not either or. It's a combination of both. Uh, but you can start at college, go straight through and end up with a great job as a result of that. Um, not everybody has the same opportunity. Talk about this campaign. Yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, there are some added costs uh, if you enter the skilled trades. For instance, students need um, uh, personal protective equipment and they need a set of tools often. Those aren't covered uh, by their tuition costs, so it's money out of their own pocket. We also have people, though, that uh, need to reskill that are already in the labor force, but frankly need to reskill for the green skills in the low carbon economy and uh, their workforce is transitioning. So some of them come back part time or full time to to get those, uh, pick up those skills. And then there are lots of disadvantaged and underrepresented uh, groups that frankly don't have the resources to be able to better their life uh, by getting a, a skilled trades education. And so uh, part of the purpose of this campaign is also to support uh, those people through our city school initiative. And how does it work? So it's very easy. Uh, if you go to the website, mohawkcollege.ca uh, slash gifts, um, any donation that is made this week will be matched dollar for dollar by the Steves family, a very uh, generous supporter of um, the Mohawk College and our students. Uh, so your your uh, the investment you make, the donation that you give goes twice as far. And you can pick how that money is used. There's uh, four different options in there in terms of who you might like to support or how you might like your, your money to be used. And uh, of course, you get a tax receipt for it. And uh, that uh, is very helpful at income tax time as well. And what are your goals for this? Well, we'd like to do a number of things. Um, for those uh, students who might be considering uh, entering the skilled trades but simply don't have the resources to get there, we'd like to be, be able to offer some bursaries and scholarship uh, money to support them and help them in there. Uh, some students um, simply don't have additional resources to be able to uh, cover the cost of their personal protective equipment or their 
uh, which in could include safety shoes and a, a helmet or something like that, as well as their um, tools. And so some of the money will go to supporting them. And some of it will go to supporting um, uh, and making uh, skilled trades uh, awareness, in uh, particularly in high schools and in public schools. Uh, so over time, we hope to uh, do a good job of letting people know the type of fabulous jobs are available for those that want, into, want to get into construction trades or or one of the other many trades that are available. How important is it for everyone to get involved? And by that, I mean, obviously, the schools are involved in, 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 in that's their role, but also the businesses themselves and local organizations to try to keep those people here. Well, I, I think uh, people will, will it will become obvious to people when they uh, phone to get an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter and simply cannot uh, mm. find anybody or they're waiting for a house that's taking uh, many more years to build than they expected it would or they're in a queue for their for their house to be built and closed. Uh, we need to train more uh, skilled trades uh, workers. The, the challenge right now is, of course, many more are retiring than are entering the field. Um, and uh, so we see the boomers all exiting uh, as they as they are uh, going into retirement. So so we need to be able to attract more people. Uh, the, the college itself is spending uh, more of our its, its own resources to try to do that. But we could really use a hand from the public right now. This is something that affects all of us, uh, not only in housing, but in auto repair, in uh, in a host of different uh uh, areas of our life where we might need help. And so um, to the extent that we can get their support and count on their support, that would be incredibly helpful in terms uh, of turning the tide here. Only a, a few seconds left. Uh, how important is it, obviously, you're involved at the college level to get this started earlier? I mean, I remember back in the day, we had a tech wing in our high school. It was massive. Now those are virtually disappeared, but I hear they're coming back. Yeah, they are coming back. And uh, this year and the past year, we had a lot of guidance counselors through our skilled trades campus in Stony Creek. That was very helpful. Guidance counselors, as you know, are trained in university and often don't know what uh, colleges have to offer. So building awareness there was helpful. We also need to do it with parents. Ron McCurley with us, President Mohawk College National Skilled Trades and Technology Week. This week, Mohawk College Foundation is promoting a fundraising, uh, fundraising campaign to support these workers. Ron, thank you for the time. Best of luck. Be well. Thanks, Scott. All right. Uh, I was surprised to hear this over the news, and we remember the fallout. Uh, the, the Prime Minister, for, for months and months and months, no, the carbon tax is what it is. We're not doing anything, even though uh, today it was the uh, Environment and Sustainable uh, Development Commissioner, Jerry DeMarco, that said uh, it can't be trusted. It is simply not working. Uh, a new Leger poll shows that 57% of Canadians want the federal government to remove the carbon tax from everyone's home heating uh, bills. For some reason, and usually to do with the falling polls, uh, Atlantic Canada cashing in on a three-year pausing of this tax. However, the rest of the country who use probably cleaner forms of energy uh, are getting no relief whatsoever. Only 21% oppose extending the carbon tax exemption, which is, uh, I'll leave it at that. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. And with us now, Franco, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on this afternoon. Frank, are you surprised by the amount of attention this has got? Canadians obviously paying attention. The turmoil when uh, the, the carbon tax was, was uh, relief was going to benefit only Atlantic Canadians and, and not the rest. Are, are you surprised at the furor this has caused? I'm not surprised at all. Like, Mr. Trudeau, what did you think was going to happen 
when you gave 3% of the Canadian homes a little bit of relief, and then you left 97% of Canadian families out in the cold. I mean, come Mm -hmm. on. The number one economic issue right here in Canada, I think it's so obvious, is that people are worried about affording their groceries. People are worried about the big price tag they have to pay every time they go to the pumps. People are just stressing out, worried about their home heating bills this winter. So I'm not surprised at all that you have people who are up in arms right now, absolutely furious at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, absolutely furious at the Liberal MPs who keep on leaving them out in the cold. I'm not surprised at all. You know what else is crazy? You essentially have a cross-partisan attack on Trudeau's carbon tax rank regional favoritism. The premiers are united against it. You have even the federal NDP that is hammering Trudeau on this. Of course, the federal conservatives are hammering Trudeau on this. And you even have like NDP members of legislature speaking out. So it's pretty clear to me that all Canadians are uniting against Trudeau's carbon tax favoritism, saying, hey, Mr. Trudeau, just do this simple, fair and obvious thing and remove the carbon tax from everyone's home heating bill this winter. Yeah, when the Conservatives brought this to the House of Commons for a vote, as you mentioned, the NDP sided with them, but the bloc kept it out. What are your thoughts? Not just the bloc, right? Let's put the blame where it is. Liberal members of Parliament. And remember that Atlantic Canadian um, minister who said, hey, if you want your voices heard, Canadians, just Hmm. elect more Liberals. Well, only one problem with that. There's a bunch of Liberal members of the Parliament in the rest of Canada. What is there, like around 76-ish? Liberal members of parliament in Ontario. So why didn't those liberal members of parliament, why didn't they stand up for their constituents instead of standing up for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's political ambition, right? Those liberal MPs, I'm so upset with them because they had the opportunity to stand up for their constituents to say, hey, everyone in Canada is struggling. All families, regardless of where they live, deserve relief. But liberal members of parliament did not do that. Just yesterday, they voted for you to pay the carbon tax on your home heating bill. And by the way, folks, we crunched the numbers. The carbon tax on natural gas alone this year, the tax alone will cost you 300 bucks. Over three years, as Trudeau continues to crank up that carbon tax, it's gonna cost the average family on natural gas alone $1,100. What about the report today? Environment and Sustainable Development Commissioner Jerry uh, DeMarco said that this plan cannot be trusted. It, uh, although raises funds, it doesn't really seem to have much of an impact. Yeah, I mean, surprise, surprise, right? We've been talking about this for a long time. The Parliamentary Budget Officer, right, the nonpartisan independent budget watchdog, also said, hey, guess what? Uh, you're not going to reduce global emissions by making it harder for Canadians to afford the food they need to put on the table by making it more expensive for Canadians to fuel up their car to take their kids to hockey practice or just to make it more expensive here in Canada to keep the heat on, right? Because like we make up 1.5% of global emissions. So a carbon tax in Canada does nothing for the environment. It's just causing a whole bunch of pain. Are you surprised by the amount to uh, 21% oppose uh, extending the support of this uh, of this pause, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the Prime Minister and the Environment Minister, obviously, for months and months and months, had said they're not going to budge on this. But are you surprised about the amount of people that say uh, we should keep going? I mean, that's a little lower than what I probably most anticipated. Well, I don't know. I, I don't think so, actually. I think that's a real bad number for the Prime Minister, right? Yeah. Essentially, that, that says only one in five Canadians actually support what the Prime Minister is doing on the carbon tax. 
right? That's essentially just people who would vote with the prime minister regardless. In fact, that is lower than the liberal party is polling. Okay, so that 21% mm. supporting the prime minister's carbon tax carve out is a very, very bad number. Let me just give you some other uh, notes from the poll here. 57% of Canadians want the carbon tax removed from all, from all home heating, a clear majority. But it gets worse because if you remove the undecided, you're at about 73% of Canadians that want the tax removed from everyone's home heating bill. Let me throw one more statistic at you. That carbon tax carve out predominantly helped Atlantic Canadian families. But even in Atlantic Canada, 66% of those folks there out on the East Coast want the carbon tax removed from everyone's home heating bill. So they're getting hammered left, right, and center on this one. Franco Terrasano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. 57% say that the uh, rebates that we're seeing out west, or sorry, out east, should be extended across the country. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, Certainly aware you are, the world is, of the conflict going on between Palestinians and Israelis. Hamas uh, 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 attack on on, uh, Israel. And then, of course, the following... Uh, attack on or defense of Israel on uh, the Gaza Strip, wherever that's going, however you view it. Uh, this new poll out by Leger for the Association for Canadian Studies found that 55% of Canadians worry about relationships between Jews and Muslims in Canada, and 50% worry about the way that each group interacts with each other and how to view all of this. Let's bring in Jack Jedwab, President of the Association for Canadian Studies, and here now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well, Scott. Thanks. How should or do Canadians who aren't on either side, don't belong to either of these groups, I shouldn't say on either side, but don't belong to either of these groups, view this conflict? How, how should Canadians view this? Well, in terms of the domestic uh, conflict and the perception that uh, relations are strained between Jews and Muslims in Canada, uh, I, that's a function clearly of uh, the way in which the uh, perception of the international uh, conflict is being uh, processed or, or uh, if you like, uh, uh, portrayed by Canadians, right? They're sort of transferring the Israel war against Hamas into domestic tension between Jews and Muslims uh, in terms of that relationship. So uh, it's, again, it's the way in which we're framing the international conflict in its dom- in, in domestic, in what we perceive to be its domestic expression, right? Uh, as regards those strained relationships. So uh, that's what uh, Canadians appear to be concerned about. But the other facet of the poll, which is important, is that uh, Canadians are seeing increased degrees of hate expression uh, in social media and media. Over the past few weeks, 45% of Canadians are saying they've seen a, 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 an uptick in hate expression. Uh, and uh, that's a source of concern. And they're saying they particularly see that hate expression directed at uh, Jews, uh, Palestinians, uh, Israelis, and Muslims. Uh, I would argue that uh, since the extent to which they're seeing the hate expression directed at Jews is disproportionate to the negative sentiment towards Jews, we're seeing a bit more activation of hate expression directed at Jews than the other groups identified uh, in the survey. Having said that, it's important for us to be vigilant about combating anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and all other forms of racism. 
Is this about Palestinians versus Israelis, this religion versus that, left versus right, or is this about democracy and freedom versus authoritarianism and terror, or is that just too simplistic? Uh, I think it's about a war between Israel and Hamas, and to that extent, since uh, Hamas is widely acknowledged as a terrorist group, uh, I think it's fair to say that Israel is fighting a terrorist group, but you know, there's a lot of casualties arising from that, and uh, it's really, really sad for everyone concerned. You know, my heart goes out to all the, all the, all the victims of this conflict. You know, in what clearly is a war between Israel and Hamas, and Hamas is a terrorist group. So, that's the way I How see do it. Can Some it... people have a different narrative around this, and you know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll probably beg to differ with them on it. So. How do Canadians balance this discussion? We're seeing, uh, obviously, Palestinian rallies versus posters of missing Jews, uh, you know, posters being torn down, people uh, obviously rallying for both sides of this discussion. How do you balance? How do Canadians balance this? How do they what do they do? Well, we're living in a democracy, and so people have the right to express themselves freely in that regard and whatever position they you know choose to take. uh, What they need to be careful about is not crossing over the line in terms of uh, making statements that are racist and or threatening statements. Uh, We have seen examples of that, and we need to be vigilant about that because anything that crosses the line in that regard is not acceptable. So uh, that's what Canadians need to, I think, keep in mind. We're in a democracy, and democracy people have the right to protest, and they have the right to express themselves freely, but the extent that that spills over into uh, racist statements or violence is something that we need to be uh, vigilant about and act uh, as as needed when that that emerges. We talked about democracy versus authoritarianism. How do do Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas? Uh, well, again, there's uh, that's there's international sort of that plays itself out in many ways on the international front, I suppose, and. Uh, and it's a complex issue. I, I'd probably need a lot more time to answer that question. Uh, but uh, Hamas is a, is a terrorist organization designated in Canada as such, and but it also has been governing uh, that particular region of uh, of the planet, uh, as to say, uh, in Gaza. And uh, and it's very challenging to address that situation. And they do have some support from the population there. We don't know exactly, you know, what percentage support that organization as a government and what uh, and who and what percentage don't but uh at this particular point there's a war between israel and hamas and uh we'll have to see you know how that plays itself out ideally it plays itself out uh by seeing uh, hamas no longer uh having uh, oversight in that part of the of the of the globe have you has this divided canadians are you surprised it has if so um, I'm not surprised that there are divisions. I think we needed to fully expect there'd be some spillover as regards, you know, what we're seeing uh, internationally. The images we're seeing, they're certainly going to be painful to uh, a lot of people, Palestinians, others, to see, uh, you know, the casualties in that part of the world. And certainly, let's not forget about the horrific atrocities committed on October 7th towards mm-hmm. uh, citizens of Israel and others, not just citizens of Israel. Uh, so, you know, there's uh, a lot of pain and, and suffering uh, across the uh, proverbial uh, board for all communities in this particular situation. Uh, and, you know, at the root of it all, uh, again, this is in my view, but I'm sure, you know, this would be the object debate, I, I think is Hamas. Uh, and so we, you know, need to 
find ways of addressing that. Israel is attempting to do that to the best of its ability in a very challenging situation that it finds itself. And we're diverse societies and we're diverse in Canada and we have to be sure to manage our diversity and be sure to manage the tensions that are going to arise from this type of a conflict. Jack Jedwab with us, president of the Association for Canadian Studies. Jack, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. As the deadline to repay pandemic loans and receive partial forgiveness approaches, small businesses are hoping that the federal government will again reverse course and extend it for another year. Nearly 9,000, 900,000 organizations applied and received for the Canadian Emergency Business Account Loan during the global COVID-19 pandemic. The federal program offered up 60 grand in interest-free loans to help businesses and nonprofits survive related shutdowns and slowdowns. $49.2 billion was uh, dispersed through the program. To talk more, Dan Kelly with us, President of the Canadian Federation for Independent Business, and here now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, obviously, this has been extended once, Dan. Uh, looking for another extension. When is the deadline, and, and how many of these have been repaid? Uh, what, what size of this 900000 are we talking about? Yeah, the estimates are somewhere between 10 and 20% of SIBA loans at last reading were repaid, uh, meaning that there are several hundred thousand of these loans, uh, probably six, 700,000 loans that have yet to be repaid by small business owners that took them out in order to survive COVID. You, you're right, quite right. This loan was extended once. Uh, you know, the main reason is that, you know, when we, when these loans were first taken out by business owners, we thought COVID was going to be a couple of weeks or a couple of months to flatten the curve. Nobody predicted at the time that this was going to be, there, there were, we would be two years of on and off restrictions. I'll remind listeners that Canada had, Ontario had uh, the longest lockdowns in the entire world. No mm. one locked down businesses longer than, than Ontario. Uh, some parts of the province were locked down for, for restaurants and gyms for 430 days. Uh, as a result, the damage has not, we've not had enough time for businesses to recover. Uh, and that's why we feel like another extension beyond January 18th of 2024 is needed in order for businesses to get some time to regenerate some of the money to repay these loans. Why not just say, rather than, you know, waiting to see and, and for, uh, extending it, whatever it puts, you know, like five years, you got five years and then we see what happens. Uh, because it, it, it will obviously be difficult to forgive uh, some of these loans, if some have already paid back in full, you're quite right. Look, we, we've we've recommended a, a few things over the over the time. The first loan was forty thousand dollars, and it was supposed to be paid back by the end of twenty two. The loan was increased to sixty thousand, of which forty thousand requ- is required to be repaid. The deadline uh, to keep that forgivable chunk was extended until tw- the end of twenty twenty three. Now January eighteenth of twenty twenty four. Uh, we'd ideally like to have two more years to repay these loans, but for goodness sakes, when the government did announce in September an extension, uh, they announced an extension of 18 days. <laughs> so they kicked the deadline from January yeah. January, December 31st to, to January 18th. That's not going to give anybody any more bandwidth to try to, to come up with a plan to repay this. If you can believe it. The advice of the federal government is for the, the, the hundreds of thousands of businesses that don't have the money to repay their SIBA loan, their official advice from Ottawa is 
go to your bank and take out a loan to repay hmm. your loan. Um, hmm. It would be as if Ottawa says to a cash-strapped homeowner that's struggling to pay their visa card, <laughs> well, our advice is just go out and apply for a MasterCard to repay your visa card. That's, this, is what, this is how crazy the advice is from Ottawa right now. Should it that I suggested five years only for the uh, the purposes of planning? I mean, do we need yeah. more of a runway so businesses can plan? I mean, I'm sure they can, or well, maybe not, make do and go, okay, we can make it to this month or that month, which businesses yeah. do anyway. Um, but at least if you gave them some sort of a longer plan, would that not help in at least helping them forecast what they can do moving forward? It would. And we've put forward all sorts of other counterproposals to Ottawa including the idea of some form of installment payment rather than requiring you to come up with $40,000 by January 18th, require businesses to pay you know, $10,000 this year, $15,000 the next year until the debt is repaid. Uh, these, you, what your suggestion is, is similar to that, the getting, a, getting a plan for businesses to slowly and steadily get this debt down would help. We've got to remember, uh, our data shows that only half of small businesses have seen sales return to 2019 levels. Most businesses are not just in debt with their SIBA loan, but they've taken out $100,000 in total debt in order to survive the past few years. And the cost of everything a business buys, just like we are facing inflation at home, businesses have been, fa- have been facing massive inflation on every line, including that of for wages. This is meant for most small businesses, especially those in retail, hospitality, the service sector, arts and entertainment, travel and tourism. They haven't had a normal month of income in three years. Are we delaying the inevitable? I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. Uh, you know, as long as you keep uh, extending this, they will stay afloat. If they're going to go, they're going to go. What do you say to that? Look, there's. The, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I've had that conversation with, uh, with several senior ministers, too. Uh, there's no question, even with more time, there are going to be businesses that are not going to make it. Uh, there's another group of businesses that have the money right now, and they're just hoping that they have some additional time that they don't have to repay it. But the group I'm most worried about are the group is the group of businesses that are, have viable business models that if we can get through this rough patch, they actually will live to fight another day. They have good models. They have good products or services and a good location, and they just need more time. It's that group, which I, uh, which I believe is at least a third of business owners, that if, we're, if, if we tip them into, if we, if we push too hard for them to repay this loan or their debt yeah. goes up by 50% on January 19th, we may pull the plug on the business's life prematurely. Uh, and of course, that has a huge social cost to us as Canadians. What about paying it off in other ways? And you talked that you, you said that you made many uh, suggestions to them rather than like a lump sum payment. Yeah. Man, we don't even pay our mortgages that way. Um, other, are, are there other incentives needed? For example, if you put the money towards building your business, if you put the money towards, um, hiring more employees, we'll offset yeah. that. I mean, there has to be more ways to do this. Oh, look, we've, we've, <laughs> you're, you're quite right. There have been dozens and dozens of ideas floated to Ottawa. It is a huge program, and I do sympathize that it is hard to come up with a one-size-fits-all approach to, to fix this, mm-hmm. this giant problem. Um, uh, again, our data shows that there's about a third of businesses that are going to be okay. They have the money to repay the loans. They'll be able to do it. 
There's a third of business owners that will go ahead and take out a loan to repay their SIBA loan, as crazy as that might sound. But there's about a third of businesses that just don't have the money to repay. And we've got to figure out what pathway they have for them. A customized approach would be great. At the same time, uh, we're running out of time. I mean, gosh, this is a couple of months. Uh, and for anything in Ottawa to, to turn, uh, there needs, we're at the point where we need a blanket policy uh, to extend these loans. We have a, a, a petition on CFIB's website, cfib.ca, that's calling on Ottawa to add an extra year to the SIBA loan deadline to allow businesses until the end of 2024 to repay their loan and still get the forgivable chunk. Dan Kelly with us, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, uh, businesses looking to get their uh, pandemic uh, payments extended or loans extended through the uh, SIBA, uh, through the SIBA loan uh, in order to be able to repay. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Anytime at all. Thank you. We've talked at length about how long the NDP will prop up the Liberal government. I even had uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on the show prior to the convention here in Hamilton. And I was saying, don't you want to be prime minister? And by the end of the call, he was saying, I want to be prime minister. After saying that he wasn't interested in power, he was interested in the best way to get results for Canadians and therefore his pharmacare plan. Whereas we became later, he could do all that, couldn't he? Well, let's bring in Wayne Petrosi to see if times have changed. Professor Emeritus, Politics and Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here with us now, Wayne. Thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I am, th- and thank you. Is the tide turning for the NDP, Wayne? Are they getting close to making a decision about fish or cut bait? What's your thought? I I don't think they're in a position to make a decision of that sort anytime soon. Why is that? Because they don't have enough to actually win this the the big chair. Oh, I don't. I think they're a long way from as you put it, winning the big chair, uh, prevailing in a general election, as I would otherwise put it. So, yeah, I, I, they're far from that. I, I think they need to, as, as a party, get together and decide what are their, their, their priorities for the next session. Has this agreement not been beneficial to them? You know, that, that, it's a good question, and it's not all that clear just how good it has been, if it's been good at all. You know, the, the problem you have as a junior member of, of any kind of partnership is that successes are naturally claimed by the the more senior member of the partnership. And, uh, you know, failures are blamed on circumstances. Uh, but in either case, you don't loom very large. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I was chatting with Jagmeet Singh prior to the convention and asked why he doesn't move forward and, and try to be leader. He said he wasn't interested in a power grab. That's not what he was trying to do, although he's clearly using his leverage to get his programs through. Um, and, and he said that, that he was more interested in getting this program rather than becoming prime minister. By the end, he had changed his tune and said he wanted to be prime minister. Uh, but how do you balance this? How do you, how, how do you move forward? How do you how do you figure out what the next direction is? Where you go? Well, I, I think you balance it by always under, regardless of circumstances, regardless of temptations, always remaining remaining very clear eyed as to what you can really accomplish in, a, in within a, a defined period of time. And I don't think winning the next general election or coming first, if you will, and, and securing a majority government. Never mind some kind of uh, other coalition, that's not practical. I don't think 
he would be doing himself any favors by starting to behave as if he actually thought that was true. What about even becoming the official opposition? I mean, is that not possible? I think right now, looking at the polling, I I would say no, it isn't. Uh, I think they will be in in tough to be the third party in the uh, Parliament of Canada. How do we explain that, considering the agreement? Well, I, you know, because I, I think voters, too, tend to give credit to the one at the top of the pile when it, it works, just as they're inclined to heap abuse on whoever's at the top of the pile when things don't go well. Uh, so it, it's not a surprise that, uh, you know, liberals get to get credit, take credit when times are good. They're feeling the heat very demonstrably when times aren't so good. Has anyone received credit for this arrangement? I guess, uh, but, you know, they're obviously still in power, so um, maybe not receiving credit, but certainly the benefit. You know, I'm not sure that, uh, I mean, it, that any benefit has, has necessarily uh, accrued to anyone at this point. I think right now Canadians are preoccupied uh, not looking at some kind of tally sheet for the last few years. They're just looking at the week in front of them. And it's been tough. Does the NDP need a plan and and pick one lane or the other? I mean, what is your job here? Is it to jump on uh, in a coalition and try to affect some policy in some way or another, which you don't really get credit for? Uh, so why do this? Why pick this as a direction? Do they need a, a, a different goal, a different objective here? No, I suspect they have to keep their, their if you like, uh, their goals bite-sized. And bite size in this case means uh, getting something out of the next session of Parliament, just as it meant something like that in the at the beginning of the last session. They they can't delude themselves into believing that uh, they are somehow a couple of breaks away from becoming the dominant party in, in the Canadian Parliament. Uh, Many many have said, including those in the Liberal Party, that the Prime Minister has taken uh, the once great left of centre Liberal Party and taken it to the extreme left. If that's the case, uh, won't the NDP be labelled in that if Canadians don't like uh, extreme left or where the Prime Minister has taken what what once was the centre left party? Why would they vote NDP for more? Well, again, they're going to vote NDP based on the ability of the NDP to secure these small victories. So the behavior the other day in the House uh, is, is, is representative of that. Uh, they voted with the Conservatives uh, around carbon uh, credits or home, home heating oil and extending it to all forms of, of home heating oil. Uh, they did that because they believe a good chunk of their constituents are feeling the pain of, of rising fuel bills. And notwithstanding that they otherwise don't agree much with the Conservatives on that when they want to vote yes to send a signal to their supporters that we're thinking about you. We're trying to do the best for you. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus of Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, the role in the future of the NDP. Uh, Wayne, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
All right, Ontario is planning to require employers to include salary ranges and job postings and disclose if artificial intelligence is used during the hiring process. Let's bring in David Pacini, Ministry of Labor, Immigration, Training and Skills Development, Province of Ontario, and here now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Scott. First of all, before we get to the salaries and job uh, salary ranges and such, talk about all, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, you must, or you're looking forward to disclose if AI is used during the hiring process. What does that mean? What does that entail? Yeah, great question, Scott. Thanks. I think this is common sense, and um, you know, AI is increasingly being used. Um, you know, I'm calling you on a cell phone. I I am on all day, every day, and we know technology is increasingly disruptive, d- disruptor in the workforce. So ensuring that when AI is used, which can be beneficial in in recruitment, but we know studies have shown can also exclude underrepresented uh, elements of the workforce, by by disclosing the use of AI, we're making it transparent uh, for workers in the province of Ontario. It's an important first step of being transparent in the use of AI and and yet another part of, of how we're working for workers in the province of Ontario. How is it used, David? I mean, obviously, if uh, you, you can see how if that if a certain segment of the population isn't represented uh, on the Internet, then, of course, they may be left out. But how is it used in the hiring process? Yeah, it's a good question, Scott. So algorithms can look into um, not only uh, key elements of your resume, but can have now also the ability, AI, to comb your social media profile to see if you'd be a good fit in the culture of the workplace. All of these things, you know, um, can be used in a beneficial manner, but also, um, you know, can, uh, we know, as I said, studies have shown it can, it can weed people out. So I think it being transparent is a key piece. And also there's a privacy element. People deserve to know if AI is being used and if it is being used, what it, it's being used. I mentioned the social media piece. You deserve to know, you being the worker, um, that your privacy is protected. Um, is it enough to say that, okay, we're being transparent, it's used? Is that enough or should there be guidelines there on how it is used? That's a really good question. And if we need to do more, we will. So I look forward to taking this to the legislature. I know there'll be a lot of uh, feedback in the legislature debate. This will go to committee. Uh, If workers want us to do more, we will. But I think we're taking an important first step here. It'll make us a leader uh, among, um, you know, a few others in North America, but certainly a leader in our country. And I look forward to the discussion with workers on this. Uh, Planning to require employers to include salary ranges and job uh, postings. Why is that important? Yeah, you know, when salary ranges and salaries are are, are hidden. There's only one beneficiary, and that's big business. And so, um, you know, as a part of, uh, again, working for workers in, in our province, um, we're requiring employers to disclose salary ranges. Um, we know, Scott, it's also an important piece in tackling the, the pay equity gap. Uh, women earn, on average, 87 cents to the dollar that men earn, and, uh, you know, underrepresented groups uh, earn even less. So, this is an important uh, step. It's not a silver bullet. I'm not suggesting that it ever it ever is, but it is a very important step, and one that again, you know, a few other jurisdictions in North America are doing. This will make us yet again a leader in in North America under Premier Ford's leadership. And I think there's also a common sense element for many working, um, you know, who are working harder, wondering if they're going to get ahead in today's Canada. Um, you know, that step 
to apply for a new job, the daunting step to go through all those hurdles just to find out that it's nowhere near the salary you wanted. Yeah. You know, I think we're empowering workers, putting it the range up front. And, you know, it makes it makes earning a, a bigger paycheck and a better job that much more attainable for workers in our province. What about sharing uh, as an employee information with other employees about what you make and, and what you your your deal might be? Is good, bad, ugly? Should this be allowed? Is it allowed? Where are you going? Yeah, you know, I think there's an element of of employee to employee discussions that will never regulate or, you know, that's that's human behavior. And, you know, I don't believe in, in big brother government going after people who just have human to human conversations in the workplace. But I think that that sort of stigma and those private conversations by by opening up and saying, here are the salary ranges. Um, you know, you're, you're very much taking that out into the open, empowering people, as I said. Um, my conversations with workers in our province, they're working hard. Um, you know, they, they, they work sometimes one, sometimes two jobs um, just to make ends meet. And so the idea of, of looking for a new job is, is so low in their priority list. It's about feeding the kids. It's about picking them up from school. It's about extracurriculars with the family. And so, again, that idea of posting a salary range is a big winner for them. They said this this makes me, you know, assures me that when I make this application, I know I'm going to get a better job, bigger paycheck, and empowering me with that information up front, it's common sense. A non-disclosure agreement, uh, many who are in a situation where they might get a big payout, a company says, we'll give you this, but you got to keep your mouth shut. Usually it's more than the required to by law. Uh, but you can't talk about your past experience, can't slam the employer, that sort of thing. Is is there much weight with these? Yeah, look, my message for the creeps and, and, the, and the predators in the workplace uh, committing sexual harassment or misconduct, your time's up in Ontario. We're mandating uh, this, um, you know, and consulting is an important first step. Um, and, you know, I, I look forward to the discussion. I've already had overwhelming response from victims groups and others who are sick and tired of being silenced. There are instances where victims come forward and seek an NDA. And, you know, in in, in that circumstance, I look forward to that discussion with legal groups, victims and and advocates. Um, But, you know, I I think we've heard far too many stories of people being silenced with NDAs. And and that time's done in Ontario. You know, um, our government uh, is saying no. You you know it was an important first step we took in post secondary institutes, um, and now we're saying anywhere in Ontario you're not going to be silencing victims with NDAs. David Pacini with us, Minister of Labour, Immigration, Training, and Skills Development for the Province of Ontario, talking about changes coming in regard to salary postings and artificial intelligence. Just the tip of the iceberg. David, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks. How you do? Take care. A new report says people living in Ontario need at least twenty dollars an hour to get by in what uh, in a way that counts uh, are reasonable. We know minimum wage is lower than that in situations, but should the goal be making minimum the same as a living wage? Instead, should we not focus on getting people into a job that is graduating above minimum wage? Minimum wage has never ever been called a livable wage. No one has ever been able to live on a minimum wage. Certainly not since I was making three eighty-five at Woolworths way back when. But I digress. Uh, to talk more about all of this, are we focusing on too much? 
much socialism and not enough uh, building to give people the opportunity to move above a minimum wage category. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, Doing very well. Thank you, uh, Scott. So is what I'm saying just completely outdated with what uh, the reality is in Canada, in the world these days? I mean, it's never been called a living wage. It was a place to start. Should we be offering more in opportunity to get people into the next category or just increasing the minimum wage to make people be able to afford rent on it? Um, There's so much wrong with this proposal. Um, I talk about this in class. Uh, I did work at minimum wage when I after I dropped out of high school in 1971. I uh, was about three years uh, bumming around minimum wage jobs before I went back to school. I am deeply familiar with minimum wage jobs. In fact, members of my family have been on minimum wage. But we have to be evidence-based. And uh, this is an advocacy group that put out this study. That's a fancy word for a lobbyist. By the way, I'm not a lobbyist. I do not consult to anybody anywhere at any time. I am paid by Carlton. I do study the data. And let's put some data on the table. Less than 10% of all Canadians work at minimum wage. The vast majority of Canadians do not work at minimum wage. The second point is that the vast majority of people who make minimum wage are not below the poverty line. This is StatsCan data. The third point I want to make is if we want to address poverty, and I'm not suggesting we should not address poverty, and this is where the, the these NGOs, uh, I think that they engage in a little bit of demagoguery. They're saying, well, what do you mean? How come you're against helping poor people? No, 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 no. Nobody's against helping poor people. So let's get that nonsense off the table. Okay. What I'm saying is if we want to address poverty, you target those who are, in fact, below the poverty line. And right now it's 7.6% according to Canada. By the way, and that's no excuse to not to, to not do something. We have one of the lowest. We're in the bottom third of the wealthiest countries in the world. That's called the OECD. Uh, we have, uh, we're on the bottom third, according to the OECD, in terms of poverty. We're at 7.6%, uh, which is an astonishing uh, number. Unless we can do more. But this is not the way to do it because if you do increase the minimum wage, you do two things. First off, Most of the people on minimum wage are not below the poverty line. So you're not getting at the people who are below the poverty line. That's the first problem. You're going after the wrong people. The second problem is is that, and the stats are very clear on this, it's no different the logic than the logic of a carbon tax. When you make something more expensive, what happens? You use less of it. That's the whole logic of a carbon tax. Increase the tax on carbon, you use less of it. When you increase the minimum wage, and this has been studied to death, believe me, for 50, 60, 70 years, when you when you increase the minimum wage, what happens is companies everywhere economize and yeah. they say, okay, I've got to do everything to drive down my cost of wages because it's going through the roof. So you install automated checkout uh, counters in the grocery stores and in the Home Depots and the Canadian tires. And you put... Uh, um, ordering pads uh, on the on the tables in the restaurants to reduce the number of servers. In other words, when you drive up the cost of labor like that, what you're doing is you're you're incentivizing big time companies to automate and use a lot less labor, and that's exactly what's happening. So not only does the this dramatic increase in the minimum wage that they're proposing, not only does it not target the people who are below the poverty line. But it also 
creates unemployment because what it does is it it sabotages the 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 use of these uh, to to use more jobs. I want to tell you a quick story, very quickly, Scott, because uh, I travel a lot in the states, and and I will be very frank. I'm a real weird academic. I go into Walmart regularly, everywhere, not just in Ottawa, everywhere. Okay, and we have a very high minimum wage in in, in Ontario. You go into a Walmart store, and there's very very few people on the floor, which is you know to be expected when you have very high minimum wages. Hmm. When I go into places like Alabama or, or South Carolina, and you go into a Walmart. There's just dozens and dozens of people working there, Walmart employees. And then I went and looked up the, the minimum wage. It's much, much lower. Now, I know what the unions will say. They're saying this is exploiting people. If you really want to deal with poverty, you don't do it through making minimum wages higher. You deal with it through targeted social income support programs, as we have done in this country since the Great Depression. Unemployment insurance is a targeted program. You don't give it to people who have a job. You give it to people who lost their job. You know, you don't give social welfare or social assistance or whatever we want to call it now to people that are making a hundred thousand a year. You give it to people who don't have any money. You know, we have pharmacare, provincial pharmacare for people at the bottom end of the spectrum, the bottom end of the income scale. In other words, we can do things, lots of things through fiscal policy, through targeting different social programs to target. Um, people who are low income. Doing it through the job side is the worst possible way to do it because it creates unemployment and you don't even get and target the people who really are below the poverty line. So it's just a very, very, very bad policy from beginning to end. You're talking uh, you're talking about who we actually target with these programs. How do we how do we move workers into the next category? What do we need to do to provide those people with more opportunity to excel? Oh, now I can give you one word. It's one single word, everybody out there in Radio Land. It's called education. Mm-hmm. I dropped out of high school at the age in grade twelve. And let there be no mistake about this, because the unions hate it when I say this. And I am unionized, by the way. Nobody should be dreaming that I would be a professor today if I had remained a high school dropout. We don't hire professors with grade 11. If people don't believe that, send me an email. I'll explain it to you. Okay. In other words, and I'm not saying everybody should go to university because then they throw that back in my face. I actually believe that the community colleges are doing a fabulous job. I know I'm not supposed to say that as a professor. I'm supposed to tell everybody you're all supposed to go to university. I don't believe that. I believe the community colleges do a tremendous job. And what we need are uh, because they're very dynamic and they're much more attuned to the labor markets. And and I'm going to make my colleagues in the university very angry for what I'm now saying to you. What we need to do is get more people into the community colleges. They're superb at dealing with the labor shortages and the trades and other parts of the economy. It's a far less expensive uh, institution. A colleges is typically a two-year program. And we know the stats from Stats Canada from 1950 until today show that when you have more than grade 12, in other words, community college or university education, you have lower rates of unemployment and you have higher average incomes. So the name of the game is education, not increasing the minimum wage. Only got a few seconds left. Is is livable wage another populist buzz phrase like affordable housing? I mean, many will say nothing is affordable. Nothing's livable. Is that just another buzz phrase? I think it's, I, I do believe that it is, it's a buzz phrase because it appeals to people that are progressive and they feel badly. And I understand that I'm not 
you know, hitting them over the head for that, but they feel very badly. And so they say, oh, it's caused by, you know, the, the low minimum wage. As I said, most people on minimum wage, less than 10% are below the poverty line. So they should at least do their homework, maybe go back to school themselves in the NGOs and learn how to do good stats, read these statistical Go look at the stats from StatsCan and see how can we actually get at and target people who are below the poverty line. And this is not the way to do it because they're using bad data. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, discussing the minimum wage. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. Scott Radley standing by. Uh, of course, you can hear him on the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Cat's out. We haven't talked because obviously, obviously I was away yesterday. Yes. Uh, and many people debating what they're going to do moving forward, blah, 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 whether they keep the quarterback or not. Uh, we always see changes on the field, changes in, in lower management and such, and then other players, other people go on to win great cups and such. And Hamilton just kind of stands there wondering what happened. Do these changes need to happen uh, at the lower level or upper? Is it upper management that needs a good shaking? Well, uh, let's answer that question by saying there are nine teams in this league. Over the last 25 years, there sometimes have been eight teams in this league. If you were an accountant or uh, someone who was working in the insurance business, you would say the stats, the odds of a championship you should have probably won three by now in 25 years if with those numbers. When everybody else is winning championships, everybody else is winning championships and you wallow in mediocrity. We talked about this on your show yesterday while I was filling in for you. If you look at their record over the last 20 years, they've had one great year. They had one year where they were 15 and three. Every other year they have been mediocre or worse. Every other year, mediocre or worse. And simply statistically, you would say that somewhere in there, other than that one time, you would have a really good, even not a 15 and three year, you know, a, a, something that's just 13 and five will go with something like a really good year. No. And then they don't win a championship. They've been to a few great cups, but a lot of that are, I would argue, has been that many years, the East has been a tire fire. And so it's not that difficult sometimes to get out of the East. I, I look at this and I think what is, you, you've changed all the players. There's not a single player who was here yeah. 20 years ago. You've changed all the coaches. You've changed all the assistant coaches. You've changed all the equipment guys. You've changed everybody and you still are in the same position. Something is a constant. And I'm not putting the finger at Bob Young because I think that Bob Young he is the caretaker. He calls himself, he's the owner, he pays the bills, but Bob Young's not calling any shots here. No. Uh, at some point, I do think you have to look and say, what is the constant? And I'm not saying that guy's going to, any of the people or guy, Scott Mitchell or whomever else, they're not going anywhere. He owns part of the team now, but maybe something different should be done maybe some changes in how things have been done. I, I don't even know, Scott, cause you and I don't see behind the scenes. All we can see are the results and every other team wins championships now and then, except for the Ticats. 
Uh, I talked to another pundit about this earlier in the day, said basically the same thing, and they said, well, you know, the management is doing various jobs. They've all got multiple titles, whether that's to keep them there, pay them, what have you. So really, it's the same, it's the same ring around the rosy. Uh, yeah. And, and you know what? I mean, I think one of the arguments that will be given is, well, look, it's, it's the same people who oversee essentially loosely the forge and they've got four championships in five years. So, uh, mm. there's nothing wrong. It, it is a slightly different scenario. That league is an upstart starting out league where you got a great head start because you did put a lot of money in and Bob Young essentially started that league, but I'm not taking anything away from how forge has done. I simply go back to my point, Scott, if, if the same result happens time and time and time and time again, and you've changed everything, but one or two things, maybe you need to look at those one or two things and say, what could we do differently? What could we do differently? Whether it's just changing some personnel or putting someone else in charge of some of these decisions, or I don't even know what, but constancy makes it reasonably, I think is a good place to start to say, if every, if things are happening the same way again and again and again, we should be looking there first. All right. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock. And news. talking about this, by the way, next and th- There you go. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Uh, in this case, a new listener who uh, joined us on the trip that we were just on. And Gino says, listening to you now, you sound good, even with a hangover. No, that's jet lag, my friend. That is jet lag. And keep right except to pass. Nine one one. Nine one one. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.